0: Good evening and welcome to the seventh, believe it or not, the seventh seminar in our series on Contemporary Arab Studies. It's a great pleasure to see so many of you back. And given our speaker tonight and her subject, no surprise, Elizabeth Suzanne Kassab <coughs> currently holds the Associate Professorship of Philosophy at the Doha Institute for Graduate Studies in Qatar. She's currently Chair of the Philosophy Program Her research interests in modern and contemporary history of Arab thought and culture, and her present work in progresses on Arab modernity between philosophy and art, writing a different contemporary Arab intellectual history. She's also the elected chair of the Arab Council for the Social Sciences Board of Trustees. She has published the works of reference for many of those who would approach contemporary thought. Her 2010 book, Contemporary Arab Thought, Cultural Critique and Comparative Perspective, and in 2019, Enlightenment on the Eve of Revolution, the Egyptian and Syrian Debates, both published by Columbia uh, University Press and, of course, both translated into Arabic to ensure that she is addressing not just the English reading audience, but critically, those most directly affected by questions of contemporary Arab thought, the Arabic audience. Uh, it is it's a great pleasure to have you with us and to be our second speaker from the Doha Institute in this term's seminar list. We are all very excited to hear exactly what you have to tell us about what the Arab Uprising have done to contemporary Arab thought. Please, a warm welcome. Thank you very much for the invitation. I'm very happy to
1: be here and to share with you some thoughts on. Uh, writing a history of contemporary Arab thought. So I wrote a book called Contemporary Arab Thought uh, some 13 years ago. It came out in 2009, late 2009, 2010. And Columbia University Press and I agreed to produce a second edition And the agreement was that I write an introduction, a new introduction to it. And this is what I'm going to share with you, some reflections on having written that book and what came after that. So why did I write this book? I'm not a a historian. I'm not a scholar of Middle East uh, studies. I know nothing. I knew nothing about all of that. I was trained in Western philosophy. And uh, as a good uh, third-world girl, I didn't want to know anything about anything Arabic, anything Muslim, anything Middle Eastern, anything that has to do with the third world. I only wanted to know about successful, beautiful Europe. And fascinated by Western philosophy, and so I uh, did that and. Uh, Wrote a dissertation on the theory of meaning in the social sciences. It feels like you know in a previous life, and then I went back to teach at the American University of Beirut. And uh, not much I, uh, as I was interested in philosophy, I was interested in Europe. How come you know this nice thing happens uh, in the world? Democracy, arts, uh, intelligent. Uh, writings of beautiful literature. And it took me a while to realize that, especially in philosophy, we're talking about a discipline where ideas are supposed to be detached from reality, right? Abstract, cogitations. And so you don't make, it's not easy to make the connection between philosophy, writings, and uh, anything uh, mundane, such as uh, history or, It took me a while, you know, the philosophers are the last ones to realize some basic things, (laughs) that there was a connection between philosophical debates and uh, historical realities, and that much of Western European philosophy was connected to European history. That some of the big dramas that had happened uh, in Europe had produced or had been occasion for uh, reflections, philosophical reflections, on a number of things which constitute then what we call n- modern Western philosophy. And then I started becoming envious of this year, not for all the other reasons, but also that here people had the luxury of discussing things that happened to them. You know, you, you go through a war, and then you have writers, and then you have even philosophers who try to make sense of these problems or dramas that happen to, to people. What were, uh, who were the people who wrote about our problems? I had no idea. Because our school system and even university doesn't prepare, doesn't tell us anything in the sense that modern intellectual production is completely absent from our curricula. So I was a good girl and a good student and uh, I went to school in a good school and learned a lot of things, but nothing about Arab debates. So I I reached a point, like many uh, typical third world girls and boys, at some point I started becoming interested in Okay, so what are our debates? Who writes about problems that uh, are quite dramatic in our lives? Um, nobody knew. N- n- nobody, I had to beg, go around and beg people just what, who would I read? There was only one course I took uh, at AUB in my undergraduate, which was. Arabic 245. I still remember the, the, the course uh, number and title. It was basically the <coughs> taught it, and it was basically on Albert Horani's mm-hmm. uh, uh, liberal thought. That was the, the thread, the 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 end of the thread I I held, and I went around saying, okay, so so who writes, who what are the other books? and it took me a journey some 10 or 15 years to collect to start reading to discover names too and this is how i produced my first book i wrote it for myself and for any other little girl who would one day perhaps be interested to find out who speaks about our own problems um, I think it has to do, of course, with what is worth knowing, with what is worth teaching. Uh, And what I wanted to find out in my uh, investigative uh, exploration was not the ones who who I would immediately find uh, (sighs) un I, I was not interested in ideology. I didn't want to know what the uh, Arab ideologists were saying, nor what the Islamists were saying. I thought there must be some intelligent people around no? people who asked questions, who put in question some of the beliefs, some of these you know ideologies that uh, were hammered around. and so I wrote a book about critique in um contemporary arab thought. Critique in, in religious thinking, in uh, cultural crisis, cultural critique, that was the main topic that interested me. Um, now, when I look back, the more I think about that book, or the, the more I find it very frustrating and, uh, and limited. Because what I did sometimes when I get angry or I get frustrated about myself and about this field, I say, What did I do? Uh, this guy said this, the other guy said that. Nice. Now, uh, we needed to know, you know, who said what about what. That uh, was useful. But one today I tell myself, it's been a few years, I tell myself, this cannot be the, the whole story. And you cannot claim that you have an understanding of modern and especially contemporary Arab thought without knowing something about who the publishers were, what were the journals uh, uh, how were they functioning who was funding them in other words a social history of all the actors that eventually produce what we call contemporary Arab thought so please do social history tell us, Uh, Now, now, thankfully, there is work coming out, and it's very exciting, uh, about journals, about publishers, about personalities, about money, uh, uh, who actually, these institutions um, established thinker. Who who was established thinker? How How does this happen? That suddenly one writer, or men in that period, Become these, you know, who have the, the say, who say what it is and what the crisis is and what the important things are. So I think the social history is extremely important to remove a little bit the naturalness of this contemporary thought in the sense that it looks as if you have Arabs, then you definitely have these debates. No. Maybe it was a constellation of circumstantial factors that led to certain themes being uh, uh, more prominent than others. I'm not saying that it's all uh, circumstantial. Some of the issues were historically uh, there to be, to be dealt with. But also to remove some of the determinism or the, the whether uh, you know, Arabs wouldn't but talk about these things. Muslims had to raise these issues. I'm not sure. So this is why I was also very interested in the comparative uh, uh, approach. So there was a section in my book where I compared a little bit these debates, especially issues of cultural critique, cultural crisis, with debates going on in Africa and Latin America. I was very excited about that portion because I learned a lot by doing that. By seeing, I think for, uh, I mean, imagine me discovering suddenly that there are other people who are not Arabs, who are not Muslims, who, are, who don't eat hummus, and raise questions about authenticity. Ooh. So this means that it's not, it's not us who are fatally connected or, or destined to raise these questions. It was a, quite an eye-opener for me. That section of the book didn't attract much attention, but I still think that comparison is, is useful. Uh, at some moment, I got interested in what I called a post-Ottoman comparative uh, framework. Greeks, Turks, and Arabs. We were all part of the Ottoman Empire, and you know it ended very badly with, with a bad divorce so everybody went their way without wanting to know anything about the others you know uh, language barriers but also sort of you know the Greeks didn't want to do anything with the Turks uh, Arabs were too busy and who are the Turks to be interested in and I think that are such exciting um, comparisons there to be done, the relation to the West, to modernity, to tradition. I didn't have the have the chance to pursue that, but lately I've been uh, trying to imagine a comparative study of contemporary thought between Iran, Turkey, and the Arab world. And I think Doha, where I am, is well positioned to do that. And I just got the green light to go ahead with a first meeting in which, I would be interested, we know nothing about uh, uh, contemporary debates in Turkey. Uh, what are the issues, how are they approached, uh, what are the challenges in writing that history? Uh, same about Iran, we know nothing about. And yet I think it would be quite exciting to, to, to explore um, neighboring, challenges, uh, uh, compare challenges. Now, it's not only that we don't have these uh, uh, comparative frameworks, it's not only that we don't have a social history, it's also that this field called Arab intellectual history is quite isolated. You know, we we read books, we say this guy said that, 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 that and yet there are fields next to us that are flourishing in a wonderful way and um, about the same time if we take the first decades the decade of the, uh, two th- the second millennium uh, the field of cultural studies with Tarek Sabri, Layel Ftouni and others in exploring Walter Amrost here uh, if you identify yourself in this field uh, exciting work has been coming out but the guys who work in indoor more serious writings you know don't don't know much about it and the feat that excites me a lot is artistry Arab contemporary modern and contemporary artistry. there is fantastic work coming out uh, since the work of Nada Shaboot. you have a whole um, a range of works that have emerged, and I think we would benefit a lot from looking at what they're doing. And what interests me particularly is to see how, some again, how some of the debates in contemporary Arab thought are dealt with by the artists. For instance, modernity. What should an Arab modernity look like? A lot of writings in, in this serious kind of writing. But Arab artists have been dealing with this also. Uh, this search for a thought of one's own, a philosophy of one's own. What is Arab philosophy? Well, artists have been, doing, have been also wondering what is a, 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 an art of, of our own? Again, my sense is that artists were as interesting, as productive, as creative, if not more. I have a a hypothesis, perhaps a bias. My sense is that artists have been more intelligent, more, more free inside, more genuine but these are my biases, uh, in, in dealing with these issues. So I think we guys who read the serious people, serious books, have there next to us a fantastic field from which we can compare and see how these issues have been dealt with. Not only because it's, it would be something new, a wider kind of perspective, But also it would get us out of logocentrism. Mm -hmm. I think in contemporary Arab thought, there is this idea that uh, logos is important. And you have these men (coughs) who write these books and tell you what is. It's a very very (laughs) male-dominant field, a very masculine kind of enunciation of what is and what should be. Uh, It would help. When you look at art history, people, it's all women, a lot of women, Uh, more marginal voices than what is a paint. Go ahead and paint something. How not important next to when I write a book about uh, 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 Arab reason. That's serious. And if you paint something, who cares? So I think this fantastic luck that art has, that it is marginal, that it's not, you know, easily taken, for t- taken to be serious, is such a fertile place. And to put in quest to provincialize logos, I think Arab thought would benefit a lot from that. To widen the scope, the definition <laughs> of thought, Others also think, artists think, and it would give you another understanding of thought which would be quite useful, I think. Um, now I come to the Arab revolts So, oops. This was what I called contemporary and is called contemporary Arab thought, say, from, from the mid, uh, from the 50s to mm. mid-20th century to the eve of the revolts. OK, so what, what are, the, are the prominent topics? Um, a lot, this is what I have in my syllabus when I teach it. Uh, what is uh, uh, is there an Arab philosophy? like debates what is a Latin American philosophy, what is African philosophy, so others also raise these questions. What is specificity and universality in especially philosophical thinking? Um, A lot written and a lot debated around modernity, authenticity, tradition. How do we modernize? Do we need to modernize? modernity and the West, tradition and the past, all of this. A lot of preoccupation in these topics. Uh, Religion. Religious renewal, (coughs) um, exegesis, hermeneutics, secularism, a lot of debate around that. Critique, critique of uh, Marxist critique of tradition, really very loud debates in the sense that a lot of right in terms of quantitatively uh, a, a lot of stuff produced a lot of um, articles and interviews and books and and and, and con- conferences and uh, and then come these massive revolts and none of this preoccupies people I didn't see anybody go out in the streets of uh, Cairo or, or, or Beirut or, uh, and say, no, we need authenticity. This cannot go on like this. We absolutely need, uh, I don't know what, uh, none of that. Nobody cares about these things. I think the revealing thing for me about the revolts is that you have all of this talk intellectual talk in one place and people's preoccupation in a different place so when one says contemporary arab thought whose thought is it those few men who were you know filling the space with their voices and their writings is it academics whose whose thought is it my thought Do i wake up and say my god what happened to authenticity Uh, so so this this very name of of arab thought whose thought Mm -hmm. again because we don't have social history we because we don't have um sociology of uh, knowledge we don't know we we know that there are these books and there are these uh, authors and so the revolts, at least, should or could raise the question. So, to what extent is there a connection between these intellectual debates and people and people's priorities, people's concerns? And there were some comments, some some uh, pieces written on on the disconnect. And I think this is something that was revealed by the. Revolts. There is somewhere a disconnect between a lot of this intellectual production and the concerns of people. People talked about, asked for dignity, for freedom, for social justice. Their concerns were political, not cultural in, that, in the way it was treated in those political writings. Now, politics and culture in this. Uh, When I look back at this modern intellectual history, it seems to me that there are two threads that compete, Uh, used to explain phenomena, the cultural thread and the political thread. I mean by that, one approach that says you know things are not going well for us because we have a problem in our culture. And the other approach is to say no, our prim- primary problem is political. And it's interesting to see from the times mid 19th century until today, when does the one take precedence over the other? When there is a political crisis, there is a lot of talk about culture. But I think that all through one can find voices who consistently said, look, our problem is primarily political, and I like to start always with Tahtawi, (laughs) who, you know, the famous question of the Nahda, why did the others uh, uh, progress, why we lag behind, and what is the secret of progress, or the well-being What makes the well-being of a society? And Tahtawi, our sheikh in his uh, mid-twenties visiting Paris, and in his famous text, in his memoirs, he says a a passage that I quote uh, with great pleasure. The guy didn't say, you know, they are French, they are a different race, they are Christian. No. He said the reason why and I'm not, it's not an interpretation. There is a passage I, I like to quote where he says, the reason why they are doing better is that they have political justice. And by political justice is holding uh, 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 rulers accountable by a set of laws. And I sort of recognize every now and then people who say, what we lack is to hold rulers accountable. Uh, uh, we lack democracy, and this is our primary problem. Um, and here I want to add, uh, I was trying to be nasty about this uh, contemporary Arab thought. They're not all nasty. It's, it's, a, it's, a, very, it's a varied landscape. It's a mistake to think that you know you take these big guys and this is uh, Arab thought. I think there are different milieus, there are minority reports, which have always interested me. And I think when you pay attention to them, then there has always been, and increasingly so when you reach the 90s, um, by the end of my book, I mean my book was published 2010 December 2010 was the Tunisian uh, revolution. I didn't, of course, uh, think at all that something like that was, was uh, in the making, but uh, the the mood, I mean, there, uh, was one of ajiz, you know, the sense of helplessness and utter despair that was on the eve of the revolt. And the subject, I mean, Those minority reports were, at times, not that, only a minority. The complaint was about the post-independence state, that the state was the major problem, that the reason why we were in such misery, economic, cultural, and everything, it's because of the failure of this state. And indeed, when people went out on the streets, it, it was the state and the failure of the state, uh, the, the, the brutality of the state that was uh, attacked more than anything else. Um, so I think one has to have, I have to have a, a differentiated vision of this, what we call the, the Arab intellectual scene that you have milieus, very different milieus, and it's interesting to compare them. Again, a social historian would do a, a great job here, social historians. I studied uh, lately uh, uh, the, intellectual, uh, the, the Enlightenment Debates, the, 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 my last book, and I want to take this as an example of the different milieus. So there are uh, in the 90s. For some reason, there was a lot of talk about enlightenment, but two different in two different settings. In the academic, scholarly, serious settings uh, around much of it around this uh, Center for Arab Unity Studies based in Beirut, big conferences, publications, uh, um, journal issues on enlightenment. And then you had the non-scholarly set of debates um, by people commenting on what was happening in those times, in the 90s, in Cairo and in Damascus. And it's interesting to compare these sets of debates. In the scholarly one, the issue is, and it's predictable, it, be, it comes for me like pressing the button. You say, Enlightenment, puff. Uh, yes, the Enlightenment is a, a Western legacy, and well, yes. Uh, It is Western, not Western. Can we adopt it? But we have uh, enlightenment in our own tradition. How can we go back to it? How does it compare? Yes, we are with the enlightenment against the West. All of that, and it turns, and it's predictable. You start an article, you can't read it because it's so predictable. (laughs) On the other hand, you have a whole set of debates where the West is completely absent. Nobody talks about the West. There is no talk of it. There are ideas taken from the Enlightenment, taken for granted, public reason, freedom, and the topic. T- people use the term near Enlightenment," the topic, uh, but talk about you know um, uh, state uh, brutality, police brutality, uh, um, uh, corruption, moral corruption, Syria. Um, um, lack of democracy all of that so i tell myself how interesting in one case it's all centered on identity you know? us and them and the, the, the enlightenment the west and we and uh, in the other set there's no, talk, no no time who cares about the western you, you have you are in syria you are in damascus and when you speak about tenmeer It's about reconstructing the human being by reinstating freedom, uh, uh, reason, the right to to use reason publicly to address public affairs. So identity, it's not identity-centered. People there are not worried about identity, nor does the West come into the picture at all. And this takes me to the business of decentering histories. I have been attending conferences lately, decentering art history, decentering enlightenment. I was invited to, to a conference uh, on that. It's nice, it's nice that the Westerners now realize, you know, there are other people on the planet, so we can't write a history of, of enlightenment without thinking what happened in, in Japan. Please come and tell us, and we are open and diverse. <laughs> nice, but I tell myself, there is a de facto decentering that has taken place, at least in the Arab case. My sense is that the weight of problems is so big that you don't have time to worry about how a French guy is writing the history of enlightenment without including you. This is really not a priority. And that you have such disasters on your hands that you are concerned with discussing um, uh, a dictatorship, uh, torture. Uh, and of course, you're thinking freedom. You're thinking uh, uh, democracy. You're thinking uh, reason. So the weight of problems does not allow you, you don't have the luxury or the, the So, I tell myself there is a decentering that has de facto taken place in this intellectual uh, uh, history. And now it gets somber and somber, and I'm coming close to the end. The revolts, okay, so, big disconnect. And I think the big worry, I am sure, the people are, interested now there is a, a um, call to really connect ideas with reality you know this blah blah about reason and reason it's no longer really that nobody has time for that this is my impression i'm not a social historian so you shouldn't really believe what i'm saying really but these are my impressions uh So the disconnect, that's one issue. The other one is really this business of Western, not Western, dissenter, not dissenter, can mean forgiven. Now what we have in front of us is a disaster area. We, the inhabitants of the region. So imagine you're sitting on a drone or watching a drone film taking you from Beirut to Damascus, to Aleppo, to Mosul, to Baghdad, to uh, to Sanaa, to uh, Sudan, to Egypt, to Libya, to this is the reality. We this is our area. It's a disaster area in the most non-metaphorical sense of the term. And the question is then, how do you how do you make sense of this? if if making sense is an activity of thinking if thinking is producing (laughs) meaning and making sense in the face of so much destruction and (coughs) unspeakable pain what thought what are you going to say what do you write what concepts will help you make sense of Syria. I think Arab thought is confront thought. People who who are inclined to think, to, to use concepts and to write, are faced with this. It's quite something. How do you make sense? Of atrocities, uh, destru- utter destruction, and what what would thinking look like? And you all know this famous. Every time human beings have reached such situations, they have wondered: Are there words to explain what happened or to express what happened? Adorno. And I think that's what is on the menu nowadays. And what would a critique look like today in the disaster area is, I think, the primary question. At the meeting of the Arab Social uh, Council for the Social Sciences, we had the uh, biannual meeting in May and we suggested, I suggested, that we host Yassin um a Syrian survivor, 16 years of war, of of jail. He's refugee now in in Berlin. His wife was kidnapped by the Islamists in Utah. You no know, news about her. His brother. Uh, kidnapped by the Islamist in Raqqa, no news about him. This man continues producing and trying to make sense of uh, what has happened to him and to the people around him. And uh, lately, last year or uh, in 21, I think, he published a book called uh, The Horrible and Its Representation. And it's an exercise in trying to, make sense and, and, and reflect on what uh, recomposing the human would look like. And so we invited him to speak about critique. And he gave us a brilliant piece, uh, which we published. And a, 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 a uh, longer version will, will be published uh, uh, next year. and briefly his idea was the following that normally up till now when you said critique you meant um, how to um, how to not give in to uh, uh, illusions right that critique is how to discern between the false and the true between... Uh, illusions and reality and he said nowadays, my job, critique, aims at makes you believe the real because it has become so surreal or unreal or beyond human understanding that the job of critique today is to make us believe what happened. I think that's quite an interesting turn. Mm-hmm. And to end this by a still more horrible uh, chapter, <laughs> we are a very eventful uh, region Gaza. Uh, I still cannot make much sense of this, but uh, I will just report that among colleagues, among friends, when we talk about Gaza nowadays, many of us say, this is it. Something has ended. Our dahar, Our khalas. Now, what is it that khalas? And we try, I've been trying to speak with, with friends and colleagues about what is it that ended with Gaza? I mean, we always knew that the West had double-stands. And we always knew that our lives didn't matter. That the West has robbed and killed, merrily for centuries. So what is, the, what is new about that? But for some reason that I still cannot uh, uh, understand and analyze fully, really because I think we, we haven't really comprehended it yet. There is something that, that made it this time that is very different from all other types, that really are the realization that really we don't matter. Mm -hmm. That we're not people. And that this West, we knew is this and that, of our Western governments, of course I'm saying. But there is something about this chapter that made it final. It's the final collapse, I think, of Western moral and intellectual credibility and legitimacy. We will see, I was telling friends, you know, we will see what the consequences this will be for us. I worry only about myself and my people. Of course, the universal ideas, or uh, 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 the, the, the the much of the cultural production, and and uh, that will stay. But there is something such a fall of the West that is unprecedented in our perception. Of course, the West has done much. Uh, a lot of horrible chapters can be recalled, but today and now in gaza something qualitative very negative happened Mm -hmm. really our lives we can be killed it's quite a realization and i think arab thought will have to deal with that too probably artists will do a better job (laughs) but um, so
0: This is it. Thank you. Elizabeth, thank you for sharing your reflections of how you have come to approach a subject that you didn't begin (laughs) with and where it's taken you. And I have to confess that I did not see the darkness to which it would lead by the time you reflect on the meaning of Gaza. And you are the first person from the Arab world to come to speak to our audience about the meaning of Gaza for those in the region and how it counts to the region. And I'm sure that there's going to be questions that will come from the audience that will ask you to elaborate on the points that you made in closing. I'm going to start somewhere else and take you back to your work on contemporary Arab thought. Because as you were speaking, the thing that struck me is you invoked Albert Hurrani, hallowed in these halls. And the exercise of uh, Arabic thought in the liberal age has been influential as building a canon of thinkers. Mm. And whenever one talks about reassessing thought for any community. It doesn't feel very far from the project of establishing a canon. And yet, in your talk, you mentioned very few names. And so I'd like to ask, as a first question, as you look at both what you wrote in Contemporary Arab Thought, and then as you think about the challenge of Contemporary Arab Thought after 2011, in light of the disconnect that you've identified between the issues that motivate people to action and the debates that thinkers were having, that disconnect you clearly were saying was shaping contemporary Arab thought or challenging Arab thought in ways that were different before and after 2011. Mm. So could you perhaps give us a sense of are there key thinkers before 2011? And, and how the, that canon might have changed as a result Or are you going to eschew the canon as an approach altogether the way you did in your lecture tonight?
1: I was never interested in one person and I never really worked on one particular thinker. I'm much more... Actually, what I wanted is a sense of... a sense of what is thought and written and debate. I I want eavesdropping, Hmm. you know? I wanted to hear what these people around me were talking about. So, for me, it was the topics that were raised, how they were raised, how they were approached, who, how they uh, answered one another, that was for me uh, uh, very interesting. And I still, you know, try to pay attention and, and see how you're making, you 're making in what is at the end of the day what is intellectual history for me I mean what is interesting for me in it is how people are making sense of what is happening to them mm-hmm. um, and sometimes I feel there are aberrations you know they go on 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 issues that perhaps is inter and here you know a, a social historian i I would like so much to. Uh, and to shed light on who becomes an important thinker. And of course, one of the guys I dislike profoundly is Zabiri, so let me take him. Uh, The Center for Unity Studies used to uh, boast that, you know, they sell 30% or I don't know how many percent of their sales come from the selling Jabiri books. And any book that he would produce, you know, every six months or something would sell wonderfully. And I used to religiously buy all these books. Um... good so my question as somebody living in this society in which El-Jabiri is a prominent uh, figure i want to know w- prominent in what sense is is what he the thought that he's producing is my thought in the sense that are these really the issues that concern me so in other words because these names had become such prominent names which impose themselves as the Arab thinkers. I feel like saying, ya Habibi, who who made, who, 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 in what sense are you the Arab thinker, Oren? To look a a bit at the the backstage and to look at the fabrication of power and and intellectual power and intellectual authority, (laughs) how does that work? I would be fascinating to, but I'm not answering your question.
0: Um, well, you kind of are, it's, it's, you're, you're reinforcing the point that you are resisting the idea of creating canonical thinkers, and you certainly don't want to take male canonical thinkers who have a big idea about logos to share with you, you know, we guys do that. Yes. So I know you're rejecting that, but they're, they're clearly, look, let me put it to you this way, if you wish to approach thought, it's textual. Yeah. I mean, t- thought may be exchanged in words. But it can't be shared too widely that way. Broadcast media will allow you to ephemerally share thought, but if you want to share enduring thought, it's textual. Does
1: a painter
0: think? Yes. Now hold on. Yes. I'm the one asking the questions right? You're the one who gave the talk. I asked the questions. We have a social contract. Yes, painters think. We go we on. have Natasha, I'm gonna call go on go you it. soon, you know. Ask So here we will accept that painters think. And, okay, we can say then that the sculpture or the canvas is a text. But I'm going to keep pressing you here until I get a sense of the ways in which Arab thought is something that can be examined between different people in a critical way and they can dispute their understandings. So I'm going to privilege the textual. And you're going to extend it to the artistic. Yes. I accept that. But where do we go with that? But
1: wait a minute. You said canonizing. Hmm. Albert Hurani, for me, painted a landscape. He said, these are the debates going on and there were these people writing these books and these were the ideas. This guy said that. He offered me a sense of what was being debated. It can be, uh, I'm sure it was revised and fine. But that's, I don't look at Albert Hurani as somebody who canonized figures. He did
0: Tahawi, <laughs> Bustani, Khair al-Din, el hmm. afghani Muhammad Abdul, Rashid Rida, oh. Taḥusayn. Oh. He calls his chapters after these people. I mean, he does. Yes. He canonizes, and and I I sense you're going to subvert that, which is cool, but I want to know how one goes about it. But you wrote a book on this. I mean, do we have key thinkers whose texts? are going to be instrumental in understanding contemporary ta'pah for 2011. Let me just start there. Sadiq Jalal al eh, for instance, does he feature?
1: Yes, all of these guys are part Can of that picture. Does he eh, feature? I mean, eh, Okay, all so we of have... these guys.
0: Do we have women in here?
1: Very few. Why? I have to look for them and invent them. And because all these men <laughs> take all the place, and they are the ones who say What is? يفتي رجل يفتي بيقول لك what is العرب يفتي ما اي وفتي إيه ايه بس يادي اي وفتي اي بس يادي اي اي بس يادي اي 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 yeah
0: yeah. I mean, I can sit here pulling names out of the hat but I'm not going to... I want to know the ones that you would light up and then have something to say about because I'm getting monosyllabic A's out of you at this point. So I'm failing utterly at the questioning.
1: People like Saadallah Wannous, this is a genius. This is lucidity. People who in the midst of defeat and anger and repression were capable to s- think straight... To say honestly and painfully what how they saw things. Not in ideological mm. uh, ca- camouflage, no, really the, this is a hero for me. This this is this is and, and, and my book for myself was really a homage to these people who under the worst conditions remained intellectually honest and morally kept their integrity and i like that younger arabs learn know about them this is our hope that there are amongst us people who remained honest who didn't give in to Mm -hmm. ideological fury who uh, did not get co-opted who who had the courage my god it took courage mm. to say what they said under those circumstances. Mm. Chapeau.
0: Chapeau. And artists, since we want to extend the scope. <sighs> Thank you, know, you. If we can invoke uh, a uh, name. Taban, you know, eh? Or C.C. Sursak, thinking yes. about your work. Yes. So, I mean, are yes. we talking about a group of artists that we should be examining in the same way we would look at philosophers and social critics?
1: My sense, but this is my bias again. This is my project by the way. This is what I'm working on now. I want to see how the artists dealt with defeat and, and modernity and liberation during the same period, in the, sa- in the same society. My sense is that artists have to be more genuine. You can't cater to a constructed identity. Mm-hmm. It's more difficult for an artist, and I'm sure they do. Yes, there is the market and everything, and I'm very new in the field, but my sense is that an artist, come in because they have the luck of being marginal. When you're not important, you don't need to fake. You don't need to 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 to, to lie to serve ideology. You can be yourself. Mm. Maybe I'm I'm naive.
0: Hopefully, there's nothing to recommend being sophisticated. Um, Okay, so I'm going to come back to one last, and then I'm going to open up to you guys, I promise. But I'm very curious about uh, what your suggestions are for addressing the disconnect you identified around 2011. Mm. You know, that there were things that people were talking about around Tanweer, which were not the issues that were driving people to action. And so you're creating an open space here for a turning point in contemporary Arab thought after 2011, I've, I've taken that drone ride. I know what you're looking down on. So is there thought engaging with this zone of destruction that is the challenge that those in the Arab world of the 2020s might hope to address for the benefit of those in the Arab world of the 2040s?
1: Look, not much time has passed, and, and I'm trying to follow and I'm trying to pay attention to read as much as I can what is coming out now. But uh, there are some some names that stand out, for instance, Yassin Haj Saleh, uh, and others, and I think what they are writing is this post-revolution uh, 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 writing. Um, and at least uh, uh, those uh, jabiri like kind of writing uh, you know the the turath uh, let's let's discuss heritage and 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 identity issues i think nobody has time for them mm-hmm. neither writers nor readers i think it's too early to 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 draw a map also i mean if you take 2011 until today so much has happened so so many disasters, and so so it has been such a cataclysmic time that it 's impossible for anybody to wrap their heads around it and it 's a short time it 's only ten years and, and and look, I mean we were um, uh, uh, discussing Sudan and suddenly uh, uh, Gaza happens and and the explosion of beirut and and i don 't yani which which human mind can really Pretend to grasp any of this—it's too early, I think. Uh, and but there, now your question: Where do I uh, do I see efforts of stopping doing that disconnect? Oh. Attempts at connecting? Yes, I think there are new types of writings. Uh, what is happening in uh, journal, Some journals like Al Jamhuria, Madamasser. That kind of writing is now much more attentive and has less time for this bombastic uh, uh, identity um, writings. But here you have people who know much more than me.